coming up on this week's show, we discuss how listener Morgan was almost outsmarted by a not-so-smart doorbell, Jellyfin makes Alex's prediction dreams come true, and I try out Q-Own Notes again. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 18. Well, Chris, I went and did it. I bought myself a smoker. My Americanization is complete. This truly is the completion of a journey that has been a multi-year journey. I'm so, so proud of you, Alex. The culmination reminds me of that American Pie moment. You remember where the coach is on the field? <laughs> I don't want to take this from you, but Alex, you know, you got to automate this. We got to, we got to integrate this somehow into Grafana. I got expectations. You know it's coming. <laughs> Will you? I want to see average cook time built into Grafana, something like that. What about average temperatures that you use? I want all the data. Average temperature per probe, I think, is really the sweet spot. Per probe? How many, how many probes are we talking about? Uh, I don't know. This sounds like an ep episode of South Park, doesn't it? <laughs> Where Cartman's getting probed or something. But uh, I don't know, like four? Four probes is a good number of probes. Have you looked into it, though, the uh, possibilities? Well, I have. And actually joining us on the show this week is a friend and colleague of mine, Morgan Peterman. He works with me at Red Hat. He's a technical account manager working on OpenShift, and he has an extensive home lab. And he uh, was the benefactor of a certain doorbell that you ordered, Chris, without researching it properly. Yeah, during the show, actually, I ordered a smart doorbell. So, Morgan, it's great to have you here. And how has my doorbell turned out? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the doorbell actually worked out pretty good once I finally got it set up, wired properly, and uh, connected running on Shinobi. <laughs> it's a little difficult, especially if you watch their YouTube video, and then you see that they use one application, and then you go to their website, and they recommend a completely different application. So, that was a lot of the hassles that I went through. I, I spent quite a bit of time using the EasyViz app. You know, it's a standard scan the QR code, it connects to the Wi-Fi in ad hoc mode, and it's supposed to work. Connect, configure Wi-Fi, and then you get your video. And it didn't do that. I had a series of texts that were getting progressively more and more frustrated over the course of, what, six hours you were installing this thing? Yes, it took a couple hours to get it working. I replaced the transformer because I didn't know if it was a power issue. I changed some wiring, cleaned up some terminals, and in the end, it just came down to the fact that the application was just awful. So I went to the website, I found out that they offer a batch configuration tool. So I downloaded the batch configuration tool, put it on the Mac, loaded it up, found the, you know, the camera, and I couldn't configure it. So then became the hunt to find a Windows machine in my house that I could actually tolerate long enough to get the batch tool on. Oh my goodness. That was the easiest for me. You know, again, there's uh, EasyViz, Guardian Vision, and then there's their actual batch tool. The EasyViz did not work at all. I just could not connect, couldn't configure. And this is after I created a new SSID, you know, just something simple. I called it IoT with a password, a password, still couldn't connect. Um, Guardian Vision wasn't working at all for me and ended up using the batch tool. The batch tool was great. I found it. It's uh, GUI based, you know, on Windows, you configure the SSID and the password and it connected instantly and I was up and running. And then I found out that my doorbell didn't work. Had to go over to Home Depot, stood in line for about an hour to get into Home Depot, came home, hooked up the doorbell. And then it was a fun game of picking which one of the 16 songs we wanted to hear 
whenever the doorbell rang. Does this thing trigger a built-in doorbell that's in the house already? So if you had something installed, it'll trigger that? Yeah. So what I found out was my old mechanical doorbell was actually broken. Uh, One of the springs had popped and it just wasn't worth trying to repair it. So I had two options. I had a regular mechanical style doorbell or the, you know, the 16 song doorbell is standard off the shelf from Home Depot, came home, wired it inside of the Easy Viz app, which is what you want to use. After you get it configured, this is very important. After you get it configured, you want to keep the Easy Viz app because it is the best app of the two that they recommend. You just go into the settings, you configure it, you tell it you have a uh, you have an electronic doorbell, and then you're set. So whenever you come up, you push the button, your doorbell rings. And what's nice is, is you can configure it if you want it to be two seconds or ten seconds. You have you have configuration options. Just to be clear, is, does it require like a an account or a service? Any kind of any kind of login that you have to go into a service to get this thing to be configured or functional or anything you have to pay for? So no, you do not need to sign up for an account to get it to configure it. You can download the batch program, the batch tool off of their website and you can get it configured. But if you want to use the Easy Viz app, from my for what I found, you you do have to log in. So I use my standard Google account. And if you're an iPhone user, which I am, you definitely want it. When somebody comes up and rings my doorbell, I get a phone call. I answer the phone call and it's audio. You hit the easy viz button and then it does uh, video so I can actually see them and I can talk to them. And it's a great app. It, it's not 100% self-hosted, but it's it's a good option that they give you. So I also configured Shinobi. It's view only or watch only. I configured my uh, motion detection and I had to t- toggle a little bit with the uh, audio detection because it was too low and crickets were setting off the recording. And then obviously if you set it too high, it doesn't pick anything up. So again, I used Shinobi, I got it set up, I got it recording. I caught myself mowing the lawn, picking up the grass, you know, my neighbor at 8.30 in the morning, revving his motorcycle, wanting to wake everybody else up. So it works great with Shinobi. I was really happy with it. And that actually didn't take very long to get set up. All right. And to be clear, we're talking about the Nelly's security camera that was on Amazon for around $130. It's currently not available, but there's different iterations of it. I bought this back in January while we were recording the show and I had a sense it was a project. And so I never, I just kept putting it off. And then I realized I didn't have the proper wiring. So Alex suggested we ship it to Morgan. And so Morgan did all of this testing, did the whole install. But the one thing we haven't asked you about on this Nelly security camera is How's the picture quality? Does it actually do the job and give you a clear picture of what's going on around your porch? So the picture is actually really nice. I, I took some videos and I sent it to Alex so he could see, and it was super clear. One of the issues I did have with it is it's more of a fisheye style lens, and they advertise this as a feature. So you get the full height of the individual standing in front of the camera, but that also distorts the image just a little bit. So for example, if your little little big around the belly, you're going to look a lot bigger in the video. But the, the picture is crystal clear. The audio is actually really amazing. I was quite surprised how well it picks up audio, especially for conversations if you're, if you're not standing directly in front of the camera. For $139, I would definitely recommend it to any individual who's looking for a good camera and you want to get out of the ring, you know, or uh, one of the ones that maybe comes with Comcast, etc. Have you tried the ring doorbell? How does it compare to that? So I had the Ring doorbell when I purchased this house and it was transferred over to me. My big issue was the fact that I was paying monthly for it. 
You know, there are some features that Ring has that's really nice, but I didn't like the idea of a reoccurring monthly payment. And as you guys know, monthly payments always go up. Every year they adjust it and the total cost of ownership for these doorbells just skyrocket. On top of that, it didn't look very good. That's such a 2020 sentence. The total cost of ownership of this doorbell. Oh it my is, goodness. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you're right. And and the fact that we're even considering, does does your doorbell have a subscription service? One of the upsides that I really liked about the Nelly was the fact that it's hardwired. You don't have to worry about a battery. You know, I know people that bought rings and then they were charging their doorbell battery every couple of days, which is ridiculous. You know, the, the Nelly is hardwired, which is nice. It doesn't offer a battery as Chris, you know. Uh, the downside to it, though, and this is something I mentioned to Alex, it does get very hot. Whenever I was just plugging it in just to test it, it got to the point where I couldn't hold it for more than a couple seconds to the point where it could burn me. I don't know if this is going to affect overall longevity of the device, but you definitely don't feel it if you touch it. It's only the back where the, the camera and the electronics are. Hmm. But that is something to consider, obviously, you know, as longevity is how is the heat going to affect this device over multiple years? Particularly for you down in Florida, where it's, you know, hot always. So you now have it going into Shinobi, and then in there you're using uh, the plugin system to do motion capture. So it's only, it's always streaming, but it's only recording when there's motion capture. That's correct. And then what's really great since it uses RTSP, I have VLC running at all times, especially when I'm expecting an Amazon package, because what I've noticed is Shinobi doesn't pick up the real quick toss of the box that most Amazon deliveries do. You know, UPS and FedEx are really nice. They seem to always ring my doorbell, but I get Amazon who stands just outside of the view of the camera and they toss it on my, on my, uh, on my porch. So with VLC having it streaming at all time, I can see that nice camera land. Same thing with Amazon. I can see the Amazon truck drive by. And the video stays connected. It doesn't drop. Yeah, I haven't had any issues. I've actually had it running for two days straight without even realizing I had it connected. And it doesn't use a lot of video. Uh, I use Unify to track how much data it uses, and it's not very high. Cool. I mean, so it sounds like if you're willing to wire it and you're willing to deal with some half-baked apps for some of the initial setup and configuration changes, which can be sounds like a little frustrating, the end result is you still have something you can RTSP stream on your LAN without any cloud service required. And what happens if uh, Nelly go away? Because you found some you know, generic clones of this thing, right? The only difference between every other one of these clones and Nelly is the fact that Nelly sells it. There are some comments on the internet that they run different firmware, but from what I can tell, all it is is a clone of the EasyViz camera, and that's why you use the EasyViz application. So if Nelly goes away, the only thing you lose is support. What's great is it's not necessarily connected to a cloud. They give you instructions how to remove it from being connected to the cloud. So you can set this up with the batch tool, never connected to the cloud, and use Home Assistant. You can use Shinobi. Um, I'm sure Blue Iris would work as well. And that's what's great. And it stores everything right on that SD card. So if you're not streaming it to a uh, you know a DVR or an NVR, you can still pull out you know, the Guardian Vision app and view the data without ever logging into anything. Morgan, I'm sure you didn't do a uh, full uh, penetration test analysis, but did you get a sense of what the security is like on this thing, if you're comfortable with it? 
So one of the things I actually did do was I completely disabled it, uh, internet access. So it could not go out. I set it up so it had no internet access and it still worked great internally in my LAN. Now, obviously the phone home version of the easy viz application wasn't working, but Shinobi still worked. RTSP still worked. I was still getting alerts um, through those applications, but the easy viz application wasn't working. Right. So then I guess that would mean you wouldn't get the push notification video sent to your phone if somebody was at the door. Correct. Correct. Eh, but you could still have the VLC stream up watching the door all the time and it could be over your land, no cloud service required. So that checks my box. One of the other options is Motion Eye and Home Assistant, which was shared with me by Alex. I did not get a chance to set it up yet. That's my next project. But to get alerts via Telegram bot. And, or a Discord uh, bot. So there are options out there where you can set up an alerting service. Again, since this is a doorbell app, I would keep it available to the internet just for the EasyViz application because I want to be able to answer the phone from my couch or from my bed and see who's there, right? I don't want to get a video sent to me that may be delayed. It's nice to have a communication. And we actually use that on Sunday morning whenever a, you know, the, Jehovah Witnesses came by. Thanks, but no thanks. Have a great time. It was a lot better than waiting for a notification on the phone, then viewing the video to see who it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the real time when someone's at the door like that really makes a difference. And that does seem like a great way to politely say thank you, but no thank you and not get stuck in a conversation. I just blame coronavirus these days. (laughs) That's the general (laughs) go-to. Well, Morgan, I'm I'm really glad that uh, we sent it your way so that way you could give us the full test on it and it it sounds like if i had if i could have wired it in which i couldn't do in lady jupes but uh, i could have essentially gotten the functionality i was looking for so i'm going to keep an eye on this category because if they make one with a battery that could be the route i I would go yeah i agree it's it's, like i said it's great application thank you i I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to uh, test it out for you now before we let you go morgan you have an embarrassing data loss story you want to share with the class, don't you? Oh, no. As Alex mentioned, I am a Red Hatter. And one of the great options that Red Hat gives you is the ability to install the full stack. And I love home labbing. And as a home labber, you should really practice good backups. Mm-hmm. Because if you're supposed to be replicating what you do at home for your what you do at work, you should practice what you preach. I unfortunately ran afoul of that this weekend, installing some new SSD drives. Uh-oh. Popped open the, the home lab, installed some SSD drives, configured the RAID, and I initialized the lo- wrong RAID array. System reboots, can't connect to vCenter, can't connect to my VMs, log into the ESXi hosts, and all my VMs just have VM-number, and they're all gone. Oh, no. And then I realized instantly what I did, that I just wiped out all of my data. How awful did that feel? Jeez. But it's okay, Morgan, because you and I were talking, and you wrote loads of automation to rebuild this stuff, right? And you, you put it in Git. It was fine, right? <laughs> Alex has been hounding me to document the entire process, to automate everything. And I, I took his word for it. I love Ansible. Ansible's a great tool. And I wrote thousands of lines of Ansible playbooks to replicate my entire environment outside of ESXi and vCenter to the point where I actually deleted a bunch of my VMs and I redeployed them. Unfortunately, that was in my GitLab server, 
which was on my home lab that I erased. <laughs> right. I mean, I'll be honest, I laughed pretty hard when he told me this story the first time. Yeah, because it's not you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've done that. I've wiped out three terabytes worth of stuff numerous times. Boy, but wiping out data and the VMs is like a double blow. But I've never not had my configuration in GitHub as opposed to a local GitLab. So Yes, I learned. So once I redo all that work, it'll all be stored externally. So a nice little tip for you. Um, if you've heard of Git-T, that is a self-hosted local uh, GitHub server clone thing. And Git-T will automatically clone any commits you make to GitHub. So I have a local copy of all of my GitHub stuff is locally saved by Git-T. Now, the motivation for that was, what if they get bought out by some evil company? Oh, wait, they maybe did. What if they did something crazy with my data? But obviously the same is true in both directions. If if I accidentally initialize the wrong SSD array and wipe my local <laughs> Git server, it's all in GitHub too. So Yeah, so I spent Saturday night rebuilding the most important VMs. And I'm sure, sadly, it won't be the last time I accidentally delete everything. But I'll, I'll make sure that this will be the last time I delete everything without proper backups. So your postmortem is off-site, off-site, off-site. Do you know what you're going to use? I have not looked into it yet. Uh, Backblaze is obviously one that I do like. You know, unlimited storage. The downside of I've used it before, and it does take a long time to pull everything down. You've got gigabit symmetrical internet, though. So, you know, the actual upload part, which is normally the problem, you've got that licked. Yeah, I have symmetrical one gig, so it's pretty nice. But most likely what I'm going to do is write some scripts using PowerShell that'll export the VMDKs, except for you know, the things that I can easily download quickly. Uh, and then I'll just zip those up and send them up to Backplace and just have that like on a 24, every 24 hours that'll go. That's what I actually used to do in my previous job is a site consultant. But, you know, as I said, you're supposed to practice what you preach and very rarely do we practice what we preach and we end up, you know, with egg on our face. Amen to that. Well, thanks for joining us, Morgan. It was a lot of fun and uh, I'll see what other free stuff I can get you in the future. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, Morgan. I have a data loss story of my own this week. It's not quite my fault, although it could be. I'm not sure it is, though. I was using Joplin, and I, I've started work on the 2020 version of Perfect Media Server. And I, I was writing away one evening for about three or four hours, and uh, I went to bed. I'd just finished a huge section, which I was really pleased with, and I thought I'd, I'd gone through and I'd proofread it and I'd edited it and I'd tweaked it and it was I was really happy with it and I came back in the morning to my desktop and it was gone gone I was just like what the hell has happened here and it turns out that Joplin had decided that the version of the note that was on the server was more important than the version of the note that I'd just edited and it overwrote it mm -hmm. then I started going to try and look through the SQLite database that Joplin has and ah uh, it's gone. It's too late. It's dead. Wow. So uh, you and I were talking about notes, and um, I think Joplin, unfortunately, it was so close. It was really good, and it's been working well for about a month. But uh, you found an alternative for me. Yeah, you know, funny enough, it's one that you and I have used before, um, but I just, I kept coming back to it, and so I wanted to share it with the class. It's it's a classic. It's Q-Own Notes. And I think it holds up to be the biggest and best contender 
to Evernote that I can find. There's a couple of fundamentals that I really like about it. Number one, all of the notes are stored in plain text files, markdown files. You can just go cat them on the command line. You can also, you can put notes in multiple folders. You can have them one in Dropbox, one on your local file system, one on SyncThing, another one in NextCloud. It also will use the OwnCloud NextCloud API to actually take advantage of the notes in NextCloud if you have that. And then that gives you a web viewer for your notes, which is really nice. It can also integrate with some of the calendar stuff there. And then the one that you sounded like you were kind of excited about, this isn't something I've played with before, but I think I'm going to now, is... I realized it also supports Git versioning. Yeah, that's a game changer. I mean, I use Git to version manage all of my code, so why not version manage all of my notes? And normally the process of doing a, you know, a Git add, Git commit or whatever, every time I get to, you know, a new paragraph would be a bit too cumbersome. Sure. But QO notes seems to handle that for you on on the most part. And uh, I'd kind of written it off as being a bit ugly and a bit clunky. But I really started to dig through some of the menu settings today. You know, I was wrong. I, I think, honestly, it's it's a really great looking app. And this speaks to a larger principle. I think you and I have been kind of circling around with notes for, for quite a while, really. We're going to use Nextcloud to actually sync the notes between devices. So, you know, between an iPad and a Linux server and a MacBook and a, you know, an XPS, whatever, running whatever flavor of Linux this week we're, we're using. Um, we use Nextcloud to handle the sync. And then on each system, I mean, QO Notes runs on Mac, Windows, and Linux, but on mobile, we can use whatever apps we want to edit those files where QO Notes doesn't exist. And I think that's the key, really. It's, it's a bit like Wi-Fi, really. You're separating your firewall from your uh, Wi-Fi. You're separating the sync of the notes from the editing of the notes. And I think hopefully, hopefully that's going to result in a really reliable, robust solution. I've been playing around with it. I have uh, um, IA Writer on iOS on the iPad with the new keyboard, and I use that to edit some notes. And then I go back to my desktop, and it's right there in QO Notes. I really like that so far. It's worked really well. I do think maybe eventually I can see some sort of conflict. You know, maybe I have QO Notes open and I edit a Dropbox directly. So I'm going to wait and see how that plays. We'll see eventually if I <laughs> create my own problem with that one or not. But so far, it's it's worked and uh, QO Notes also has support for adding an external editor so you can double click a note and now it opens in VS Code which is my preferred markdown editor really oh didn't know that mm -hmm, yeah and it's pretty nice because then if you have some more complex stuff or some just things that VS Code does that you want to do in your notes really simple to do that now and then the other little tip I'll pass along is if you rock a dark theme like I do if you play around in the settings for QO notes, it's not enabled by default, but they have a dark mode that they call it. And you can turn that on and it just looks a lot better. It just simply, it just looks a lot better. But also if you're running a dark theme, it's more usable. Some of the stuff won't show up unless you turn that on. Yeah, it's it's much better than I remember. I used it maybe, it was around the time I was emigrating, I think, because that's when I was getting into NextCloud big time for the first time. And then it just sort of faded away and I stopped using it for some reason. Yeah. All of the kind of controversy surrounding snaps at the moment, like I can't quite put my finger on what it is I don't fully like about them, but I never end up sticking with them. And I, I couldn't give you a concrete reason why, but it just sort of happens. And the same thing happened with QO notes before. Um, so hopefully this time is different. Now I've dug into the settings a little bit and uh, 
we'll see, I guess. You know what I think it might be for me is I changed um, Nextcloud servers a couple of times. And I sort of hit the reset button on my notes, and I wanted something that was separate from that and not really wrapped up. And I didn't really appreciate that Own Notes doesn't even need Nextcloud at all to function. Using what, like sync thing or something like that? That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I actually have Nextcloud now, so I'm just using that. Yeah. True. Um, without, without the API, I'm just using the file sync right now. And then I have another folder that I think I'm going to keep as like a backup copy. And then maybe I might eventually throw sync thing at that. I want to do an episode where you and I talk about sync thing a little more because I'm using that for a lot of things I never really expected. It's kind of in a way, it's become like a global file system for me. It's, it's really cool. Oh, that's interesting. I'll look forward to that one. I've used BitTorrent Sync since you were using it on the uh, the Unfilter show years ago. Now called Resilio Sync, but I'll be interested to hear about Sync thing. Yeah, it's different. Definitely different. It's And it's not like a torrent-like protocol. It's its own protocol. I was just the other day, I was reading their comparison of the two, and they assert that their security is superior, Sync thing does. And they also point out that all of their code is open source. <laughs> yes, well, we can't argue that one. Uh, the open source angle anyway. That's just a fact. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last episode, we talked a little bit about PlexAmp and I gave it a bit of a rough review. I'd like to change my assessment slightly. I had a lot more time to play with it over the last week or two and uh, fix some issues with my Plex library that were causing it to act out. If you remember from last episode, I uh, I put on heavy metal radio and it played Tool and then Eminem one after another, which was not right. And it turned out that actually the slash temp directory for my Plex media server container was not writable. And that is why I was having these issues. So if you're having lots of random weirdness when you're scanning your library, for example, when I was going to do, um, you know, fix match for, you know, like a, a really mainstream album like Green Day American Idiot, it tried to tell me it was by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> It's like, no. And you're telling me this is because your slash temp wasn't writable? Correct. What? After we talked to Elan in uh, one of the earlier episodes of Self-Hosted from Plex, he invited me to one of their internal Slack channels where they've been doing the development of PlexAmp for the last six months. And so I reached out to him on there and said, hey, I've got this really strange issue that's preventing me from using PlexAmp. So he and I spent a couple of hours going back and forth on Slack trying to debug this thing and um, I learned a lot about all the different log files that Plex keeps. When Plex does a scan for a media file it writes something to temp very very briefly for less than a second and so he was asking me to try and capture that file and in the process I just tried to do a touch test uh, file in, in that directory when I was exec'd into the container and it wouldn't work and I was like well there we go temp's not writable did a, a change mod and then it was fine. So I just removed the mapping altogether. I don't even remember really why I had that volume mapping in my container. But anyway, I removed it and it worked. And um, I've just been in love with PlexAmp. It's great. It's beautiful. It works really, really well. It uh, you know handles the caching of the tracks ahead really well. I found the recommendations. Now I've got temp working to be really quite good, you know. So uh, I'm sorry, PlexAmp, that I was rude about you to start with. Um, but I kind of love you now. So a little more time with it and you're liking it, huh? Isn't that interesting that uh, the recommendations aspect of it seems to play a pretty central role for you? Yeah. I mean, that's what kind of what I use Spotify for really is I, I go to a particular artist and I'll search and I'll just play the top tracks or whatever. 
most of the time. And then I look through, you know, recommended artists or a Discover Weekly playlist that uses like machine learning to generate who it thinks I'm going to like. But of course, with your own music library, most of the time, you know what's in there. You've generally curated it to the point where you know most of the tracks on an album because you've listened to it at least two or three times. And so what I found the most interesting was when I was scanning the um, albums to uh, Plex in the first place, I was going through metadata madness, trying to fix it, trying to make sure that that Green Day American Idiot album was absolutely pristine. It had the correct cover. It had the correct tags. It had everything was perfect in the metadata of the files. And it still thought it was the Beastie Boys. So I started looking at ways to make sure the metadata was correct. And I used a program called Beats to do that. Now, there's a post over on the Linux server blog written by Josh Stark, and he covers a bunch of interesting stuff about Beats in there, which is a, it's a command line music metadata management tool. And that's it. I mean, it can import music from a, a download directory or a ripped CD directory or whatever, and then goes through and tags it against a whole bunch of databases. And it's very command line driven, which means it's scriptable. So if you want to do some automation around the imports of your music, you can do it that way. But that led me on to another uh, problem. I was hitting API rate limits of one a second on the Music Brains API, which meant that Beats was running really, really, really slowly. I'm talking, it would have probably taken several days to import my entire library. Uh, so Linux server also make a self-hosted Music Brains mirror. So I'm now running on my server a local mirror of Music Brains, which is kind of cool. So then you just point beats to that local mirror and you can rate limit to, you know, 100 requests a second instead of one. So it goes much, much faster. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't even know you could host that. That is a rad little discovery, Alex. Isn't it interesting the rabbit hole you ended up going down for this? Just trying to fix metadata to get Plexamp working. Anyway, it turned out it was slash temp and all the metadata was fine anyway. So there you go. <laughs> wonder why people use Spotify. I wonder. Hey, while we're talking about you going down rabbit holes, Traffic 2.2 came out back in March, and I think you just recently had a chance to deep dive, but I didn't hear how that went. The reverse proxy of choice in the Kretschmar household for the last several years has been Nginx. And I don't know, sometimes I get itchy feet and I think to myself, oh, the grass is greener over there. What if I just use Traffic with its super cool labels and, and I could just define everything in my Docker Compose file and not have to worry about Nginx configs. It works great in the studio. And it was. It was working really, really well. I was having a great time until, and I'm afraid to say until because this is going to be a showstopper for me, until I went to use any container that was in host mode. As soon as I did that, the container's no longer on the Docker network, which is what traffic uses for internal you know, DNS, it's what it uses for internal communications. It's actually on the host network, so hence host mode. So Docker basically can't see it anymore. And as such, you can't route any traffic through traffic to the container, which unfortunately means it's no good to me. How many containers are you running in uh, host mode networking? Plex being one. Mostly for some of the UPnP stuff it does around the HD home run. Yeah. I mean, when possible, I suppose it's best not to use host networking, but I guess on your LAN, media box, it's not really the end of the world. No, I thought I had more than that. The only one is Plex, apparently. So maybe I should just expose a bunch of individual ports instead of relying on host mode. It might not be worth it, but there are a lot of nice advantages to using traffic. And if that's all it took, 
I did really like it. It took quite a bit to get my head around the kind of concepts of their front ends and back ends and how to get the labels just right. Specifically, uh, an issue I ran into was because V2 only came out in autumn last year, an issue I ran into was a lot of the documentation is around V1. And when you're Googling for stuff, you find syntax for V1 rather than V2. Uh, that's obviously going to improve with time. And it's not really a fair criticism of a project that it's, you know, developing and changing and improving. But what really drew me to traffic was the Kubernetes kind of cloud router of the future type sales pitch that they're going for at the moment. And I must say it's it's pretty cool. You know, five or six labels in the compose file that define how the traffic gets routed. And it's all in one place. And, you know, from a quick scan, I can see exactly what's going on. And I really like that concept. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I should try to give a bit more of a try, Chris. I, I'd be curious to hear what you think. I think it'd be interesting to follow up on it. It's also sort of, uh, I think, uh, good uh, market research for a guy in your uh, day job position. I did see that Caddy V2 had a release today as well, so I might go check that out this week. Maybe I'll do a little reverse proxy roundup next week, eh? Yeah, that would be great. Totally. I would I would be I mean, it's, we're, we're nerds, but I'd be totally down for that. But before we go, speaking of new releases, pretty excited to see that a Roku app has landed for Jellyfin. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I'm super duper excited because this is my second JB prediction that's come true this year. (laughs) I predicted number one, that WireGuard would be backported to the kernel that released with uh, Ubuntu 20.04. Yep, you did indeed. I predicted that Jellyfin and MB would start upping their app game and start shipping on some major platforms. And I think this is evidence of that. So it's down to the referee. You know, I'm not saying I've, I've won the race yet, but it's looking good. Well, if you want to be impressed by future Alex predictions, you can be impressed (laughs) directly by checking out our Discord at selfhosted.show slash Discord. We have a growing, active community over there. Also, you get just little additional things that go along with the show, information, notices. Sometimes Alex will drop a great deal uh, for hardware in there. So selfhosted.show slash Discord. If you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to get your emails at selfhosted.show slash contact. And then subscribe. The show is fortnightly, and you can find it at selfhosted.show slash subscribe. And if you want to get more pictures of my delicious barbecue meat smoking adventures, I'm on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Yeah, and they are very tasty looking. I am at Chris LAS. Oh, I didn't mention it in the show, but this entire episode is solar powered completely off grid. I have a little bit of just enough cell connection to do this. And we're watching all of our offline media on my local Raspberry Pis. It's happened. Greta Thunberg somewhere is is really happy with you. Good job. I know Project Off Grid is a resounding success. Even with an overcast sky, we're generating enough solar to top off our battery bank by the end of the day. So no generator, just solar, 100%. It's so awesome. So I'll have to maybe I'll post a picture up on Twitter. That is really cool. I want to buy solar so bad. It's just expensive, you know? Solar powered, self hosted. So I am at Chris <laughs> LES, and uh, the show is at self hosted show on Twitter. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was self hosted 18. <laughs>